afternoon and welcome to Implementing Analytics and Technology to Support Value-Based Care, a Health System uh, CIO Media Inc. production. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO and I'll be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. Send in your questions or comments at any time in the Q&A box and we'll take them later in the program. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, first we're going to go about 35 or 40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Adam Carvel, VP, Data Management and Analytics with Fairview Health Services, Dr. Bradley Crotty, Chief Digital Engagement Officer with Froder Health, and Don Gray, Chief Enterprise Data and Analytics Officer with Mercy. And then we will have our Q&A, our audience Q&A. So let's jump right in. Adam, if you want to start us off by telling us a little bit about your organization and your role. Sure. Thanks for having me. So I'm Adam Carvel. I'm the Vice President of Data Technology and Analytics for mHealth Fairview, which is uh, the second largest system in, in the state of Minnesota behind Mayo Clinic. Uh, and, and we are associated with the University of Minnesota Medical Center. We have about uh, 60 clinics and 10 hospitals all within the state of Minnesota. Very good. Brad? Hi, nice to see everyone. Brad Crotty, um, and in some things I serve as the Chief Digital Engagement Officer for uh, Freighter Medical College, Wisconsin. We're a uh, academic community health system in eastern Wisconsin, uh, 11 um, hospitals uh, anchored by one academic uh, health system that's the uh, Level 1 Trauma Center for Milwaukee metropolitan area in eastern Wisconsin. We have about 43, uh, 45 outpatient uh, clinics. Um, I also serve as the chief medical and product officer for a, um, a small company that's owned by the health system called Inception Health, which manages our uh, digital portfolio. So nice to, nice to be here. Very good. Thank you, Brad. Don? My name is Don Gray. I'm, uh, uh, I, I run data and analytics uh, for Mercy. Mercy is uh, based uh, out of St. Louis, Missouri. There are a lot of Mercy hospitals, so we're the we're the one that is uh, is anchored in Missouri, um, Arkansas, Oklahoma, and a, a little bit uh, in Kansas. We're a Catholic health system, about a seven billion dollar uh, enterprise with you know many many clinics and a large a large hospital system. So uh, you know we've um, I've, I joined about eighteen months ago, and we're uh, we're building out a large scale a large scale capability. Very good, Don. Thank you. All right. Um, let's get into it. Adam, we're going to start with you. Describe some of the value-based care programs you've been involved with. Talk about the analytics that were required for participation. And did you need to change things at your health system in order to produce the analytics for those programs? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. Um, so Fairview was one of the original 32 pioneer ACOs all the way back in I think 2010, uh, and I was on board at that time. And 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 we've continued in that history. So we've we're you know we've gone through kidney care choices. We're through uh, BPCIA. Uh, currently working in direct contracting. And absolutely, we we changed a ton of stuff. We we stood up a, a whole team around value based care analytics. Um, we shifted our, our incentive models to be aligned with, with the external incentives of a value-based care economy. We built out analytics that previously didn't exist, for instance, primary care impanelment, right? Building complex algorithms to be able to say who truly is accountable for a patient's care. Uh, and so 
through all of those programs, um, we've we've matured from a point where we were kind of uh, jumping in, thinking this is the right thing to do for our patients and our communities with that Pioneer program 15, uh, 12 years ago, to now being really pragmatic and thoughtful about what our what our identity is and whether or not we can be successful. Uh, and a lot of that is on the, the back of, of good analytics and understanding our patient populations. Very good, Brad. So there's a couple that you know, I'd be happy to, to talk about and weave through through our conversation. Um, so many of our digital programs, actually, I think all of our digital programs are under some value-based care arrangements, meaning that we have avoided doing a sort of a fee-for-service or using some of the CPT codes for remote patient monitoring because we feel like the clock is skate, you know, is moving towards. Uh, the value-based care arrangement, and we want to meet our patients in that environment and find the most efficient way, the most scalable way to make sure that people's needs are, are being met. So we've had a, you know, several from our mental health program. Um, COVID remote patient monitoring was one that we uh, did across all of the patients that tested positive within our health network, regardless of what um, insurance you had or whether you were uh, one of our ACO patients or clinically integrated patients or not. Um, it helped us manage our um, bed capacity. It helped us um, maintain relationships with people without needing to basically bring them into to waiting rooms. Um, and, and through all of that, when we kind of look at the value and ask questions, is it worth it to provide a pulse oximeter, is it worth it to provide this service to all those people? Everyone wants to know what's the ROI, right? What's the ROI follow for all of that, particularly if you're not billing along the way individual CPT codes, we have to be able to articulate that. And, and analytics is part of that story. What, what I would love to talk about um, you know, through this panel is how you actually get the data, get the data cleaned, massaged, and and you really bring the right uh, tools and talent to answer some of those um, problems. Because in many ways, it's not a simple uh, Excel spreadsheet anymore. It's it's a more sophisticated analysis that we need to do to actually drive um, drive these business uh, decisions. Um, we have others that I'd be happy to talk about along the way, including our. Uh, diabetes management program um, and share a little bit about how we've done the ROI and uh, calculations on, on those programs uh, as well. Um, those are uh, payer specific, but um, uh, we have increasingly been enrolling more patients across our health network in those and expanding the eligibility. So uh, driven by, you know, what we find in the numbers. So happy to talk more and look forward to it. Very good. Thank you, Brad. Don? Well, I, I would say that, you know, I, I, I walked into a situation where a strategic decision had been made for, you know, a five-year and a 10-year strategy that sees the future very much moving to value-based care. And I'm sure everybody is, is, on, is on the same boat. But, you know, uh, I would say one of the challenges about the analytics required is that it's not a, a unique population that only handles themselves in a value-based care scenario. So in a large system, you know, early on, I, I was trying to suggest, look, we need an integrated platform 
that can manage our patients as they come in and out of different care models. Because some people don't get to control that. It's whatever insurance gets offered wherever they're working. And, and, and so how do we go about that? One of the things that we, we had to do to, to produce the data was we, we decided to come up with a unified um, um, consumer record um, that would be consistent across all forms of, of, of people within our care. So it had to address everything that we needed to be able to do with value-based care, but it also had to work in a, in a fee-for-service uh, environment as well. We wanted on the value-based care, we had, to, we had to find a good partner to bring in for social determinants of health. We wanted to um, have a better comprehensive view of, of the person because oftentimes their reasons for coming into the system are are, are items that would not be considered traditional healthcare um, items. It could be um, there could be a food issue, there could be a housing issue, lot, lots and lots of issues. So we began to look at those types of, of data gaps um, that, that that we we felt that we might have. And then so we there was some new data, and we also created a unified unified or universal provider record, which was a lot of work, right? To kind of say, you know. We have people with panels for value-based care patients. They've also got fee-for-service patients. They've got various different types of value-based arrangements. How do we manage this provider data in a way that will work across all of those things uh, so that, again, it can be seamless in the patient experience? And one of the big programs that we launched, um, you know, my team created an, um, uh, algorithms to help predict uh, um, uh, a diabetic event, let's call it. Um, and we've we've worked with, a, we have a patient experience team. We worked with them where when certain lab results come in, it triggers a set of activities, you know, and it, it happens in a, in a very automated fashion in, in cooperation with uh, the care physicians. Uh, defining panels, all the things everybody else talked about very much needed to happen. There were a lot of panel definitions that were floating around, uh, similar-ish, but Everybody's got different numbers and it was providing, it was creating a lot of confusion. So, you know, we had to do all of those sort of basic elements and we incorporated those into what we're calling a unified consumer record. Um, so those are, those are some of the, some, uh, some of the activities we had to do. Very good. Brad, do you find that the, there's a relationship between the, the, what the hospital or the health system's doing and the programs and they influence each other. So for example, you may be collecting certain data and metrics, uh, but then somebody discovers a new VBC program and that wants specific information in a specific way. Okay, well, if it's compelling enough that we wanna participate, we need to produce that metric. Um, and it goes both ways. So the, the health system may produce things that it thinks are of value, but then it also winds up producing things for specific programs it wants to participate in. And that, you know, both those things impact each other. Yeah, that, that is, that is true. You know, to the extent that we can, you know, have the world, you know, come together and harmonize for at least particularly our payer network um, around, you know, certain, you know, key definitions, then great, but we've had to invest in doing a lot of mapping mm -hmm. across the different terms. And we've put in products to help us manage our, our data and data governance, because many of them are tied 
to uh, downstream systems. And you're always wondering who's included in this numerator and who's included in this denominator and do you have the right data? Um, and, and unfortunately it just requires more staff time to, to manage this. I think at a, as a, at a leadership level, we need to continue to try to figure out what, what matters and drive people um, you know, towards, you know, towards that. Um, we've had a couple of examples where we have used, uh, we've been able to get more of our local payers to kind of see the world or how we have, particularly around some chronic disease management program. Uh, for example, our diabetes program that I mentioned that we expanded eligibility in partnership with one of our payers and were able to work with, but um, for the most part, it, right, it's it's a it's a lot of data um, mapping. When it comes to the consumer experience, like all of us, you know, probably had an experience where you're going into the doctor's office and you fill out like ninety percent of the information is exactly the same, and then ten percent is like something a little bit different that that clinic or that program needs to know about. And, uh, and then as a result, usually, usually it's a paper form, um, but you're, you're sort of given the whole list to, to fill out and you say, listen, you know this about me, um, or use my, some of my patients do, they just cross it off and they see, you know, in, ha, no in chance. Epic, in, in, you, in, whatever. in Epic, right. right? So, um, so we're like, we've had to put in, you know, a fair, amount of uh, sort of process and then governance around the process to get kind of the right data um, intake from patients. Like what are we actually going to ask patients? And in this sort of consumer driven era, which is really important to us, like how can the experience not be miserable right. for people who have to fill out all these forms? So we, we've tried to come up with like a very modular way of doing it where there's sort of a base level of information that we need for you know, you have key demographics and then you have uh, social determinants of health. They're going to feed many of our downstream systems. Um, and then you have what's relevant to that clinical data picture. And then within that, you will be able to add in particular questions. So if specialty X is participating in a, an outcomes-based assessment of uh, the center of excellence and they need a particular patient report outcome measure, you know, let's include that in, but let's not make the whole experience about that. Let's figure out how to make it modular. Um, to actually get everyone on the same page, we really had to uh, basically start from scratch. We gathered, um, I have a, a, a picture on my desk of all the forms that are this high in the healthcare system, um, I, you know, in the, in the thousands of forms. We had a team go through them and then put some structure around it. What are what do we need out of everybody? So let's agree on on these. We need these for all to kind of run the business and to take care of people. Um, and then what do we need to uh, fill in the population health metrics? And then you know we we use the you know our foundation EHR system as much as we as much as we can. Um, and then we meet other program requirements, but we we try to do as much standard build as we can. And then add on to that these other little modular things if we need it for a particular program reporting or some other regulatory uh, obligation. We run that 
process through um, you know our data our data team to make sure that we're not asking that question in some other form uh, or some other data structure that is basically identical. And if it's not identical, but it's close enough, we have a quite, you know, that's a conversation about can it can it be, or do we really, really, really need it to be this other way for something that's, that's some immovable measure. And then it goes through our pop health that does all of our, our reporting to for our value-based care arrangement. It goes through um, uh, uh, any legal risk compliance review, if that's relevant uh, to the to the metric, it goes through quality because they may have other quality. Um, and then also goes through a small filter for, you know, patient experience and, and language is this um, to the extent that it's not a, you know, a standard uh, question. Is there any way that we can phrase it to be better understood without losing um, meaning of the metric? And then after that, we, we put it in uh, and tie it in. So I'm sure the folks on this webinar understand, like, it, it's a lot of process. It's a lot of like, reminding people that there's a lot of work, but we have to make the experience easier for people. We have to make the experience easier for our staff. And we have to set ourselves up for uh, to be a learning health system and to use data to drive decisions. And, and so those are kind of the, the high level things that we try to appeal mm-hmm. to people, but there's a lot of devil in those details. You know, Adam, it's, uh, it's interesting what Brad was saying. It all starts with uh, the consumerism approach in terms of what you're collecting from the patient. And it starts with, um, respecting their their wishes and the fact that we know none of us want that booklet of papers on a clipboard being handed to us and it just makes you so angry really it really does it makes me angry it's just like it's the last thing you want to do especially if you feel like uh they have it already or they should have it or something like that but um you know the original question was about that back and forth relationship between the health system and and the programs and how they can impact and sort of feed off each other. Um, and then there's the consumerism idea or anything else that Brad said you want to comment on. I'll leave it wide open for you. Sure. Yeah, I, I think Brad hit on a lot of key pain points, right, which are not only are the files and formats we get from these various value-based contracts different, but then the way we are required to collect information to participate in them Uh, How we engage with our consumers is also very different. Uh, The things that one value-based arrangement might require are generally quite different. And so Fairview has taken a very similar approach to what uh, Dr. Crotty said with with kind of a layered, uh, fragmented approach where we say, like, this is is germane to this population, and we're going to collect these sets of data variables there. Um, And so I, I think we're really similar in that regard. I will say... You know, we have an incredible relationship with our payer relations department. And so we have worked really hard on with them building out a standardized data model for both data that comes to us from our value-based arrangements that are retrospective, right? So when we get claims data, transactional data back from a payer, we ask for the same set of data elements at an encounter, a transaction in a patient level over and over again. Now, we don't always get it, um, but it's been really instrumental in helping us build out kind of a warehouse of a longitudinal view of a patient. That is then, of course, just like Brad said, it's then buttressed with this information that is so much richer that comes from our EHR, where we're collecting patient outcomes, we're collecting the remote patient monitoring data, and then we're bolting it on to create a more holistic view of that that, that patient or consumer. And and I would say the, the final step that I would even comment on is we then share some of that information back, of course, with consent. Uh, of our patients, we share some of that back to the insurance companies because they are able to to help us identify gaps that may have been closed by a site outside of my EMR's purview, 
or identify additional programs that the insurance company might be offering that could benefit from a or help us solve a gap that a, a value-based patient has. So it's kind of a holistic picture of this consumer. And we're trying to plug in, just like Brad said, individual components, individual value-added data points that help us, you know, keep our communities and our patients healthier. Very good, Don. It sounds like uh, one of the big issues here is um, health systems trying to participate in, in multiple programs. And if each program wants things in a different way or a different piece of data, Brad talked about mapping and all that kind of thing. You're all with large health systems, especially uh, you, Don, with Mercy. Um, you know, you talk about having good relationships with the payers. Uh, is there some negotiation there that says, hey, I understand you want this or you want this this way, but we have seven other programs we're participating in where we do it one way. And I'm not sure we want to be in your program if we have to do it that way, your way. Uh, is there some of that? Because ideally, again, things are standardized and uniform and the data is the data and whoever wants it, whatever program that, you know, it should be easier for the health systems. Your thoughts. Um, you know, we have a, we have a, I have a business partner um, on the senior leadership team that is, is managing the payer relationships. So, you know, I, I, I'm certainly not in a, in a position to say, you know, I, I don't think it's worth the trouble. Mm -hmm. uh, right. <laughs> right. You, so. you just have to execute on it. Right. Yeah, we have to execute. You know, I think this has been a very elusive challenge. I think within healthcare is standardized, um, uh, standardized kind of data exchange uh, formats. We we do try, right? We do provide feedback. Um, we are getting better uh, as a team of providing very specific information to the folks managing payer relationships about, you know, if we have issues with completeness or uh, inconsistencies, right? Uh, We've been working to make it easier for them to to help us, right, um, with uh, with the with the payer partners, and uh, because you know it is it is a, a give and take relationship. And I, I know we we're going to talk a little later about you know the the 21st Century Cares Act, Cares Care Act, excuse me, um, and uh, you know that that has promise. It's undoubtedly like any new program going to take time before it really flushes itself out. I'm sort of assuming if the deadline's this December, maybe by the following December, you know, it's uh, it becomes a little more helpful. And I think there's, it's, it's cause for optimism, at least. I think it, it is a, it provides a forum to create standards um, that I think has been missing. All right, very good. Let's uh, go to the next question. It's a kind of an interesting one here. Um, Brad, we'll start with you. How do you know if your data is good enough or if your data program is mature enough to participate in a value-based care program? It's just an interesting concept because, you know, I've talked to chief information officers and those involved with data, and a lot of them don't think the data is that great that they have. So if, if your organization wants to participate in a program, uh, I wonder if 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 it ever happens that the individual in charge of the data says, well, you know, we don't we're not sitting on some great stuff over here. So maybe you want to give me a year, right? Maybe you want to give me some time to see if I can clean this stuff up because it's a mess. So could you ever have a situation where the individual in charge of data is kind of like pushing back or asking for more time? And I just wonder if that happens, Brad. What do you think? Yeah, I think. 
you're in a sort of a position where, you know, do you put one foot in, do you put two feet in into to these programs and then, um, and then you're starting the journey. So in my, ex- in, in my experience sort of with, you know, two systems over the last decade, um, making these choices, it's been more of the business decision that we need to move this way. And then we have to have the data to support it. Um, you know, my prior system that I worked at was also a, a pioneer ACO member. Um, and we had, you know, still pretty, it was still pretty um, early days in terms of panel panel management we actually was a it was a self-developed uh ehr system so really all of the data um our team managed and curated um but making that decision then led to a lot of other downstream investments in in getting the data right um yeah, you sort of worry that if you if you say like, oh, I'm worried about the data, you'll be sitting around for a long time and never really um, join any of these programs. You could always make the data better. You could always enrich it with getting additional data from other sources. You could always enrich it from claims, um, you know, et, et, et cetera. Um, but that's that's my that's my my take on it. I'm interested in others. So, so Don, based on on what Brad says, it it would be reasonable to say, okay, if we're going to go into these programs, uh, you know, let's say you're the the head data person, um, if we're going to go into these pros programs, I'm really going to need some investment because we're I want to get the data better. We need to get the data better. We can't go in without additional investments in our data ecosystem. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it does make sense. One example on our side was, you know, there was a big push based on our our mission and our sort of uh, our approach to to patient care that, you know, the door is open for everybody, right? Um, And uh, so the social determinants of health became a very hot topic. And, you know, the program wanted to launch and it wanted to launch. And and, uh, and they said, we're going to capture this data in the moment. And, And that's a tough that's a tough way to do it. Right. And I said, I, I said, I don't think we can, I don't think we're going to successfully launch at scale. We need a, we need a partner that's already done a lot of this footwork. And, and um, so we were able to prevail and and it was not a big investment amount, um, you know, for the, for the data I, I've had it outside of, you know, I've been in other industries and I've delayed the launch of products for a big company because the data wasn't, in good enough shape, and that's that's a bad day. That's a, that's a bad meeting. It was like I'd been there five weeks. So that was the first time I had to go to the executive committee, right? And I had to tell them, "You're going to have to delay this very large revenue stream because of these reasons. Um, and we're going to put something in the market that isn't good enough, right?" Um, that's easier, uh, actually, because it's so obvious and it's right on the table. Most of our stuff, it's a piece of a bigger thing. Uh, so you don't have that big lever that you can, you can pull. So, you know, the, the way that I, I've gone about it and, and uh, I won't speak for the other panelists is you just have to articulate the kinds of things that are going to happen um, as a result of it and, and not exaggerate them and just try to be frank about it. And then it's a, it's a decision amongst a number of, of, of folks, right. That are in, involved with the program to say, 
is that acceptable or not acceptable um, to us? Um, and I'm we're pretty we're large, right? Uh, we're a large seven billion dollar system, but it wasn't so many years ago where it was just over thirty hospitals operating independently. So most of the people here aren't used to it being this big system. Uh, so the systemic conversations, um, I try to come into them with that in mind and articulate the kind of things and the scale to which it can create a problem. And, and I try to be honest about what could we clean up later and where are we possibly kidding ourselves, right? That we won't be able to chase after this thing um, with, with the amount of people we have and the amount of facilities we have. And just, uh, it's, it's uh, all you can do is be frank and as data people, we have to bring the data forward, of course, uh, to articulate uh, the cause. And, um, um, but, uh, you know, I, I personally haven't experienced that so much on the clinical side. Our clinical partners are, they're very conscientious, right, about the information they're using for care. I mean, I, I usually find it's in other areas. I, I I I haven't had any trouble with any anybody really trying to trying trying to uh, push the boundaries around the very the data that's most closely associated with with patient care. That's very interesting, um, Adam. Um, I just you know I want to help people in your position at other health systems, and I wonder if this is a common dynamic going on out there where the individuals in your positions uh, want to make sure the organization is getting into programs where it can produce metrics that are of quality. And there may be behind the scenes conversations that need to happen about either, okay, we'll do it, but here's what we need, or maybe we need to wait. You know, Don mentioned a situation where he, you know, put a hold on something. I think it was with another company, Don. uh, And you said, I'm not, we were not going forward with this. And that's really courageous. to do that, and and uh, I'm sure you don't regret it. I'm it was sure you... it was less scary than the alternative. <laughs> less scary, than the but but it doesn't make you popular at that moment. They might say, "Hey, who hired this guy?" And how quickly can we get rid of him? Right. So, uh, but still, it, it, the alternative, right, is to have it out there and, and crash and burn. Um, so, Adam, your thoughts around this dynamic and the the head of data and analytics having to have tough conversations and get things more in line where they think they need to be? Yeah, it's a great question. And I'll, I'll try to touch on that and also uh, get back to come, some of the, the program assessment aspects sure. of this question. You know, I look at data as, as, as an illumination tool, right? It helps us understand what our gaps are, where our problems are. And then we partner with operators to, to make the best decision for our organization, partner with the appropriate stakeholders on strategy. And then we use that data when it's when it's compelling to, to to help shape those decisions. So that presents some really unique challenges in population health. Uh, the one I'll start with is program efficacy. Um, but let me let me take actually half a step back and talk about Fairview's journey. So when we jumped into the Pioneer ACO program, we didn't really know what metrics we were going to need, right? A CMS told us, here's the quality metrics you're going to be participating in. But we didn't know what that translated to from an, uh, from an operation standpoint, what leading and lagging indicators did we need to be able to ensure success in those programs? So we started with just kind of this aspirational goal, right? Healthcare is very consumer focused. Providers and, and leadership generally want to help patients. And, and so we jumped into this not knowing exactly what we needed. And now 
uh, through you know 12 years worth of good data management, understanding the transiency of, of patients, right? Jumping from one insurance plan to another based on their employment group. With that experience over the last decade, Fairview has gotten to a point where we're evaluating programs, not only retrospectively to determine how well we think we were doing based on the data we had, which again, our EMR is, is incomplete. It's about you know somewhere between 60 and 80% of what the actual payer knows about it. We don't have great data on some of the PBM aspects. We don't have great data on some of the, the care that happens at outside of our system until later on in those in, until later on in those contracts. But we've been able to build some forecasts and some models that have allowed us to say, based on what we do know and, and quantifying what we don't know, here's how we think we can be successful. And that's all come on the backs of looking retrospectively at the programs we participated in and saying, gosh, in quarter three of this program for kidney care choices, I really expected to see a payout of X. And I didn't. And once I got the complete data set from our payers, I was able to identify where my blind spot was and then control it. And to speak a little more in specifics about controlling that blind spot, we've shifted a lot of our investment to HIEs and to making sure that we're using uh, that, that more contemporaneous information, uh, alerts for admits, discharges, and transfers, right? Negotiating with payers to get data explicitly uh, much, much faster. We've started to pull those in and look at them directly in those more holistic data sets like the claims data we get from our payers. And once we've got that, I'll call it mostly complete picture and, and, and relatively quickly, we're able to turn around and then say, are we going to be successful in this program? And then what is it about the program maybe midway through where we're not, not as performant as we'd like to be and how can we shift that accordingly? So we're using data in, in ways 12 years later that, that we never would have foreseen uh, when we started getting into the value-based care arrangements. Uh, and it allows us to be more thoughtful and predictive about the next ones that we join. Very good. Excellent. All right. Next question. Uh, Brad, let's start with you. Uh, participating in value-based care requires a lot of data sharing. And the 21st Century Cures Act has deadlines that will require more data sharing. So how, I know you're not uh, CISOs on the line, but how can health systems prepare to be, meet those regulations without running afoul of HIPAA or data blocking prohibitions? Yeah, that's a, it's, it's a complex it's a complex question. I, I what what I find the most complex aspect of this is just the uncertainty of the you know regulations and the interpretation um, of them. Um, what is information blocking um, and and the like? Um, you know, I guess the way that we're thinking about it is how can we make our system and our tools, our APIs, our portals, um, our, you know, data, uh, you know, bulk fire and otherwise is to kind of do more sharing. How can we make sure that we enable them to really do what we need for clinical care and what's right for the, you know, for the, for the patient. Um, and so if we're, transferring data for VPC purposes, you know, and we have a clear established, you know, clinical operation and business need, I'm, I'm less worried about, you know, HIPAA in, in that regard and more, more just clear that we make sure that we, if you have a right to that data, that we make it available, but we, you know, uh, we make sure that, you know, we're sending it to the right, to the right place, et cetera. Um, it, it's, what I find around 
this sort of information blocking and how to manage this is I think that my perception of this is that the, the EHR vendors and systems are, are really um, worked out trying to figure out how they can best support their um, their clients and and then their clients um, you know those are, those of us in the health informatics and you know information technology community are then trying to figure out if that's the right path and we should take the suggested um, configurations if we need to do something different um, if we're interpreting it everything the the same way um, I can just share that the way that we you know, in terms of how the, the question of like, how can systems prepare to meet those regulations? Um, I can say is, you know, the process that we follow, which I'm, I'm sure that many others are following is getting external legal op opinions, looking at all of the data where, where there are uh, connections that we have, what do we need to, to turn on? Um, you know, getting the opinion of the of security, getting the opinion of or sort of the business cases that are needed around the, the population health programs, et cetera, and, and those who manage those. And then pulling those pieces together and finding approach that um, is, is, I think, defensible from an, you know, by managing this sort of information blocking um uh, you know, balance that's going to, that's going to be created. If there's a more specific, you know, program, we could kind of, you know, dive more into it. I, I, there's a lot of the Cures Act, which I think has a lot of, a lot of people, again, sort of like, you know, hairs on end, like, how are you going to mm. interpret this? And, and, um, but, you know, I still think it's like, you know, HIPAA enabled, uh, you know, people to, to do right by the, by the patient, right? We know that, there's um, people would hide behind HIPAA and say, oh, you don't have access to that or I have I can't give that to you. But if you have a legitimate business need, it, all of this is saying is like, you know, you can't hide behind it anymore. Um, find a way to make it work and and do it. And it's really, again, going to what's right, right for the uh, right for the patient. Very good, Adam. Yeah, uh, very similar to what Brad said. So we have a, at Fairview, we have a robust data information stewardship council that includes uh, members of our legal team, members of our compliance team, uh, of course, our information security teams, our CISOs. And, and on that committee, we have established data categorizations, right? PHI, business confidential, completely confidential, et cetera. And, and we tag all, I mean, hundreds of thousands of data elements in our system with these categorizations. And then we we operate on a on a principle of least access needed, right? And that goes for developers who work in my area as well as clinicians who are seeing it. And and we really we try to live that out each and every day of just making sure that we have the minimum viable access, but still using data and the information in our system to drive the best outcomes for patients. And so um, between sort of those process steps that we put in place, I'm a little less concerned than I think. Um, you know some of the areas that aren't as mature in that data stewardship and, and and data governance arena we've been at it for for years now and of course nothing is perfect we're always tweaking it but we've got a pretty good handle on what goes in and out of our doors and we keep a pretty close eye on it very good don yeah i mean uh, pretty much the same you know we're we're leveraging uh, the data governance instruments and organizations that have been put in place we did avail ourselves of a an expert third party to come in and sort of take an independent view um, 
and we're a big we're a big epic shop and you know there's a pretty complicated and <laughs> robust um, process that uh, those those big, big AIHRs are going through to get um, uh, compliant to be certified as compliant with uh, with this act so we're, we're definitely counting on on that uh, as well we've also entered into a strategic partnership uh, quite recently with, with the Mayo Clinic and and as part of that, we're we're creating a um, we're gonna we're gonna create a, a another cloud uh, environment of de-identify data. We're not yet sure um, how else we're gonna leverage that, and whether that will be specifically helpful for this particular challenge or not. It's uh, it's too early uh, days, but there are some pretty sophisticated de-identification capabilities that are just coming into the market now that are, that are really interesting. Uh, and uh, yeah, the vendor didn't, I don't think appreciated my comment. I said, well, if that actually works, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be excited. <laughs> he said, you know, he said, what do you mean? I said, I think you know what I mean. I mean, it's a pitch is one thing and, and bringing it into the dirty environment of, uh, of a real world uh, scenario is, is quite another, but I'm very I'm optimistic that that some of these really really advanced uh, technology applications are are really starting to get at this issue, where you know it isn't so simple as blocking a few fields, right? There's more to it, because there are people out there that might have bad intent and might be good at re-identifying uh, data. Uh, mm-hmm. So you know I'm I'm also um, I'm rooting for uh, for. Uh, that that venture uh, community uh, that they're going to make some advances in the next couple of years. All right, very good. We have an audience question. Uh, looks like it's for you, Adam. Amazing predictive modeling of things outside your care network, Adam. HIEs make a ton of sense in this context. What was the key to your data science approach in leveraging these assets? Yeah, uh, so a lot of it was just based on making sure that we had financial success. So we were starting to, you know, we started with what we did know, and then we started bolting in individual variables until we found things that had enough positive predictive value for us to say, you know, that's a that's a data element that needs to be part of these models. Um, and it's it's very much piece by piece, but we had some really great subject matter experts that kind of had ideas in that space. And also a few folks that uh, engaged with vendors and were able to say, you know, what are you doing in this space? Because healthcare, at least the provider area, in in my opinion, we're a little ways behind the Optums and some of the other for-profit, you know, data data shops in the in the country uh, and in the world. And so we wanted to take advantage of some of the expertise that they have. And so while we built most of the models ourselves, especially with respect to finance, we did look at what they were collecting and, and ask them to come in and help us assess some of those for fit. All right, very good. We're going to move to our Ask a Co-Panelist uh, segment, which I love. Adam, I'm going to give you the first opportunity. Do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? Yeah, I'll throw it out to both of them. And my question is, what current or upcoming piece of technology do you think has the most import in controlling and either creating good patient outcomes or controlling value-based care costs? Uh, Brad? Wait, can I answer the other question, which is what do I think will not? What's a piece of technology that will sure. not? Sure, yeah. Um, you know, I, I mean, I think one of the things that we need is we need good good data. And one of the things that I, I kind of get excited about is 
how we can get better data on the front end without inhibiting workflow of people trying to do their do their jobs. Um, you know, we're we're trying to put some of this data on patients where it's appropriate and where they're able to to participate in in providing data, so we can kind of get the, the kind of the best sense uh, of of the context that they're that they're living in. And that helps with segmentation then. And then if we have them in with segmentation, then we can actually use some of the tools and the data to, you know, personalize how we interact with them. And then we, you know, in theory, start to change the trajectory of their, of their care in a way that, you know, we know right now, if we just do blanket, you know, uh, you know, campaigns for, X, Y, and Z preventive condition or post-ED outreach that we're not really hitting the mark as well as if we really individualize that. So I think that that's a, an area that we need to we need to grow grow in. Um, the the tools that on the flip side of you know there are several tools that help manage you know data on the clinical side. You know, is this um, does this person really have this condition or uh, and there are alerts and things. And my just encouragement for all of us is to is to actually really look at these tools, test them out, and then see if make sure they're not interfering with with clinical workflow because there may be other algorithms or other ways that we could um, do to flag when a person may have a diagnosis that's not coded or has a diagnosis that we think is a false positive that we need to clean out of the data. Um, rather than putting it on the backs of our clinicians um, that are kind of trying to survive an even busier, busier day. Mm -hmm. Don? So I'll, I'll do a near-term and mid-term. I think in the near-term, I'm most excited about process mining and applying the concepts of process mining to healthcare data um, to be able to derive uh, patient-specific care paths. And, you know, we have at Mercy, we have 15 years of transactional data, lab data, all sorts of data. It's just a mountain uh, of data. And, you know, what I've told our, our, our head of, uh, our, head of our, our, our hospitals, I said, look, what I want to create for you is a, another person uh, at your table that is 15 years and 5,000 physicians worth of insights, right? you know, that you can leverage that no no individual physician could possibly be exposed to all of these things. You know, you know, we're we're at a point where we're, we're ready to do a limited production test on on that type of capability. Where when somebody comes in, they get an initial diagnosis. We have their health history. How do we bring those things together to say the odds are are, are X percent that they're going to need these ancillary services, and and that you know if we follow this path, that has the lowest. Um, readmission rate, the lowest mortality rate. It's very exciting. The midterm one uh, that, that it's hard not to get excited about is the intersection of value-based care with precision medicine that could be possible uh, through various advanced genetic testing. And, and everybody uses the same equipment. There's different companies out there. They're putting different wrappers around it. But there's a tremendous amount of optimism that they're all using the same, the same equipment to really get at the core. 
and they're all they're all figuring out well what what is useless exhaust and what is useful exhaust because it creates even in a big data world it is a crazy pile of data right that that comes out of it so the the science of figuring out which stuff matters really is going to be so exciting and uh, uh but that it it does feel that that's just still a little beyond the tips of our fingers right so Excellent. Very good. Brad, did you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? Yeah, I'd love both of your takes on how you build a data culture within your organizations, going everywhere from, you know, top executive leaders uh, all the way through um, all staff. And, and, and then, you know, with that, um, is sort of a leading question of uh, maybe, which is how much do you insource versus outsource your data and analytics capabilities? Don, let's start with you. This has been a, a hot issue since I got here. They were uh, they were outsourcing the vast majority of it, and the problem was I couldn't find anybody inside who would explain to me. <laughs> The results that we were that people are walking around and handing to people, and I'm like, this is this is no good. So we're starting to insource more, but it is you know you want to be able to leverage the collective intelligence. So you know we are looking, and I'm actively exploring. And I'd be happy to go offline on this because it's a pretty complicated subject. Collaboration forums, right, where we can openly share. Um, um, you know, nobody comes into this industry that doesn't want to help people, I don't think. And, and so I, I think that's a big opportunity because the people read this and they hear this and they hear that. And, and but we're trying to get enough capability inside, right, where we can not just produce the insights, but really explain to people at a level of depth and confidence what we know, how sure we are. And if we're unsure, because they say, well, these people say they've got something that's this accurate. I said, we're telling you the same thing, but we're also telling you everything else, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, false positives and, and all sorts of things, right? I said, they have all those issues too. They're just not selling that part of it, right? So, yeah. so that it is, it is, uh, it, it, it's a tricky balance, you know, you want curiosity, but yeah, and create a lot of noise. Yeah. Adam? Yeah, uh, great questions. Um, so we have a small but mighty uh, analytics education group that focuses on uh, on data literacy. And, and at the executive level, I consider it my accountability to make sure that our, and I'm fortunate to have a quite data-driven culture, but it's my accountability to make sure that my executive peers know how to interpret data uh, and that they're consuming safe and reasonable data. And we do that through that, that data literacy. We also have a seal of approval. So Don, to address that issue of people seeing different, different spreadsheets with different numbers on it, we have one that is our analytics seal of excellence. That means that the terms are governed, that they've been measured, that they're approved by our data information stewardship council, that we take into account upgrades, all of these other pieces. Uh, and that's helped build that culture of literacy. But I'll be candid. For an organization like Fairview with 33,000 people, 20,000 plus of whom are providing direct patient care, data literacy isn't at the forefront of their job job duties. And so we try to make it fun. We try to come up with you know games and quizzes that that make thinking critically about data in your day-to-day -day life uh, you know, rewarding. Uh, and then with respect to insourcing versus outsourcing, 
I'm always looking for the cheapest labor footprint, but I'm I'm looking at it with qualitative variables of of return on investment as well. So um, while I can find some pretty cheap labor footprint to be able to to bang out code, that initial idea of consulting with the service line executives and understanding their needs, interpreting them from a data lens, and then building that out, we are generally continuing to build that kind of uh, institutional wisdom in house, and then we we partner with our our global partners to make sure that we're delivering content that is. Uh, scalable, sustainable, and reusable. And so we we use a combination of both. All right, uh, Don, I don't think we're going to have time for your question to your co-panelists, so I apologize for that. I think we're going to have to move to uh, final thoughts. So the way I want to uh, couch this or or sort of set it up is picture you're giving your best advice to someone at a comparable-sized organization in a comparable position. Based on your experience, your work, and your career, What's your best piece of advice to that individual as to how they can um, help execute on, on what their job is? Um, Brad, we're going to start with you. I would offer this, is that, and that's to consider data as a, as a product um, that you have, you maintain, and, and that you use. You have internal customers, and you start to really make sure that your product you know, meets the needs of your customers and you're continually trying to make it better, cheaper to produce, you know, to Adam's point and, and the like. So um, that's a concept that I would leave people with. That's very good. It probably helps uh, create a lot of strategies when you think of it that way. Don? I would say, you know, keep doing the hard work to articulate a compelling vision of the future that is data and analytics driven. And, and uh, you know, I, I've been at networking breakfast for people who do the kind of work we do. And I was at one uh, a few years back and the person was complaining that nobody's interested in their work. And, and I said, well, maybe your work isn't very interesting. And um, I, I said, you know, it, it's hard to make some of the stuff we have to do interesting and exciting. And, you know, it can be a little bit frustrating, but you gotta keep on it. I, try, I ask myself every week, did I come up? Is there anything interesting? How interesting is it to others? Is there a way to make it more interesting? Because that's on us. You know, we can't we can't count on anybody else to to try to tell our story. We have to find ways to do it. Yeah, it makes me think of when I when I speak to CISOs. It's um, you know they want to be connected to the patient care mission. So patient safety, right? Security is patient safety. So, uh, you know, connecting everything to outcomes, patient outcomes is usually a helpful way to go. But a very good point there, Don. Adam, we're going to give you the final word. Sure. I would say uh, focus on balance, right? There's going to be things you're going to have to do quickly, uh, but you're also going to want to come back around and make sure that you resolve the technical debt that doing things quickly often creates. Um, to your point, Anthony, focus on the balance between better patient outcomes and, and considering data as a strategic asset to your business that costs money and, and requires care and feeding. And, and I think if, you, if you're continually trying to balance those aspects of both moving fast and, and getting things done um, with building something that is sustainable and future worthy, that you're going to end up in a pretty good spot. It took us a long time to learn that lesson, and we, we're continually revisiting it, but we're, we're getting pretty good at it. Wow, lots of great stuff there. Um, so much stuff for people to take away and and I think help them do their jobs a little better. Um, regarding continuing education, you can use the final slide in this deck 
Um, you'll receive an email when the on-demand recording of this event is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team. And you can go to our website to register for upcoming panels. Uh, so with that, I want to thank our panel very much, Adam Carvel, Dr. Brad Crotty, and Don Gray. And I want to thank you for attending. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you.